Hello and welcome to the Ask Abhijit show. How are you all doing? I hope you're doing great. Uh, today we discuss uh, history, geopolitics, current affairs and so on. So uh, let me take a look at who all is there right now with us. I can see Rohit, Priyanshi, Debosman, Sweta, Monu, Nihal, Dharman, Artu, Futu, Priyanka, Ganpat, Crazy Braid, Ankan, History. And more, Abhay, Praful, Lakshay, Aditi, Sajik, Satej, Shambhavi, Haripriya, Bluebird, Eternal, Akshit, Divesh, uh, Darshan, Rohit, Om, Tejas, Lakshay, Trupti, Samir, Divesh, Harshada, Jayes, Rahul, Pavan, Vinayak, Real Facts, Sarathoibi, New Name, Jim Barak, Saket, Chirag, Krishna, and lots of other people. Great to have you all with us tonight or today, wherever you are, depending on where you are. And with that said, let us get into the questions. As always, we have a whole lot of questions to cover. So shall we get into it? Let's take question number one. Question number one is by Tejas. What's your take on the lion controversy on the Ashok Stamba? So what's this controversy, the lion controversy? Let's take a look at what the controversy is all about. Um, 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 let me, uh, where's the image? Yes, this is the image. Take a look. So this apparently is the controversial image. The uh, new parliament building is being constructed and uh, the lion emblem of the Indian nation has been placed on top. And uh, Mr. Modi, the prime minister, posed with it. And apparently this is controversial. So, uh, those who are upset, some people are upset about this. They're, they're saying that the lions look too scary. Why are the lions' mouths open? Why are they baring their fangs? Why can't they be more civilized and keep their mouths, mouths closed and not scare the hell out of everybody? So the controversy is about the lions having open mouths and baring their fangs. Apparently, it looks extremely scary. And that's what's upsetting some people. Yeah. So that's real. That is, that is the controversy. So it's okay if other nations have scary emblems. Uh, England, for instance, has three lions on its emblem. Even though there are no lions in England, that's fine. They can do it. Uh, Wales has a dragon, apparently. Dragons don't even exist, but, uh, but, but that's fine. The Chinese, their national emblem is more or less a dragon, which is a mythical, imaginary creature, scary creature. That's fine. They can have it. But the Indian nation must have a non-scary emblem, emblem, a non-scary symbol. This is very aggressive, very, uh, it, it evokes violence and aggression. We are a nation of non-violence and ahimsa and all that nonsense. So that is apparently the, the controversy, right? That, that is what people, some certain sections of the political class and society apparently are upset about. So here's what they would like the Indian national emblem to be like. This is what they want it to be. Hello Kitty, yeah, you you uh, keep this as the Indian national emblem on the, on the on top of the parliament and everywhere else. That is what will appease them. They want India to be reduced to this. Well, tough luck because it's not going to happen. So that is what the controversy is about. And just disregard this nonsense. India is what it is. And uh, if people find it scary, so be it. It's time for a change after a thousand years for India to be a little bit scarier than it, what it's, uh, it's been like. Time to dump non-violence and all that nonsense into the into the trash bin. 
Yeah, because that's how it is. So that's my take on this. Very brief. Right. Next. Vishnu Das says, I, why don't you take my questions? I tried for months and you never asked, answered my question. Please take it this time. All right, sir. I found it. So let's take it. There are four questions. So because it's been several months, he's asking four at the same time. <laughs> All right. Let's take four. Question number one is, we know that the Maratha defeated the Mughals. Then why didn't they recover the temples and Hindu monuments destroyed by the Mughals? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I am not a real expert in Maratha history. Uh, I don't know why this was not done. The Marathas did uh, recover the whole of India from the Mughals. They did free, liberate India from foreign oppression. They reunified India all the way to up to parts of southern Afghanistan. And much of the Indian subcontinent was under Maratha rule. So I don't know why they did not do what, what you're saying. And they also allowed the so-called nominal Mughal emperor to stay in power in Delhi. He was essentially the mayor of Delhi, nothing more. But he was called the Mughal emperor of the whole of India. They allowed this individual, this Turk, to stay in power in the city of Delhi, even though he had no real power. It was just a nominal figurehead. And they allowed him to stay. So I don't know why this was done. Maybe there were political reasons for this. Yeah, I don't know. But yes, that's a question that I would like some historians or experts in Maratha history to answer. Uh, maybe they, maybe they were in power for not long enough. Maybe the, the empire crumbled very rapidly within a century or so. Maybe there was too much politicking within the Maratha empire. Yeah, the Peshwas and all that came and went. Some of them were really great people. No doubt about it. Some of the Peshwas were really great. Chhatrapati Shivaji was one of the greatest, of course. But later on, there was a lot of infighting among the Marathas. And that eventually led to the decline and, and uh, the defeat of the Maratha Empire at the hands of the British during the uh, during the Anglo-Maratha Wars. So maybe there was not enough time to, uh, to change things in the nation. They were too busy fighting amongst themselves for power. Maybe that's the cause. So I don't really have the exact answer for that, but that seems to be the reason. There was, no, there, there was not enough time to change all, all the destruction uh, that had been wrought upon the country by the Turks over several centuries. Yeah. Okay, number two. Today in the army, they do salute to show respect to seniors. What gesture was used by our, by our ancient army? So yes, today in the armed forces, we salute this way or that way, whichever it is. If you want to disrespect your officers, you salute with the left hand. That's what Indians did in 1946 during the great uh, Indian naval rebellion against the British. Yeah, they took to saluting the British officers with the left hand. Anyway, so uh, today we, we are copying the British blindly. Salute that way. What gesture was used by our ancient army? I don't know. None of us know. We don't know. Is there any record in our um, whatever texts survive from the olden times about how, uh, about whether there was a gesture or something like that, something uh, similar to a salute? We don't know. We don't know. We have lost uh, records of that time. So, yeah, it's a good question, but we don't have the answer to that. Okay, number three, the organization of party or Netaji Bose, is it still in India or is it dissolved? Okay, let's uh, let's take a look. Yeah, uh, where is Google search? Let's go to Google search. Um, let's. Uh, so the organization of Netaji Bose was called the Forward Block. Forward Block. So this organization. The All India Forward Bloc is a left-wing nationalist political party in India. 
it emerged as a faction within the Indian National Congress in 1939, led by Subhash Chandra Bose. So clearly it still exists. The party re-established as an independent political party after the independence of India. It has its main stronghold in West Bengal and so on and so forth. So the All India Forward Bloc was founded by Subhash Chandra Bose in 1939 and it still exists. So that is your answer, my dear sir. That's your answer. All right. Uh, let us go back to the questions. Number four. Why did the English people name their company the East India Company? Why not India Company or whatever? Well, it's... Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So as I suppose you all know, that individual Cristoforo Colombo, Christopher Columbus, set out westwards from Spain across the Atlantic Ocean in the hope of discovering or rediscovering India. Yeah. He set out with, I don't know, two or three ships, three, three, four ships, whatever the number is, look it up. So he set out on his voyage in order to rediscover India and claim it for the Spanish crown for his masters and mistress, for his master and mistress, the king and queen of Spain. And he ended up blundering all the way westwards and, and discovering the the continent of the of the of North America. He first discovered some islands in the Caribbean and Hispaniola, which is present day Haiti, etc., and so on. But yeah, he is credited with the discovery of America, even though long before him it was the Vikings, Leif Erikson, etc., who discovered America. Anyway. So when Christopher Columbus came upon, upon this great landmass, he said, We have discovered India. This is the India. This is India. And he called the natives of this region, the, the native Americans, the, the Caribs, the Arawaks, etc. He called them Indians. And he went back to Spain and said, I have discovered India. There's a lot of gold, blah, blah, blah. Lies, all lies. He knew, I, I suppose he would have known. It's, it's not quite like the, the way India was described in uh, older European texts because India had extensive contacts with Europe. So Christopher Columbus said, I have discovered India. And uh, that's why the people of the Native Americans are still kind of still called Indians, Native Indians, Red Indians, whatever, right? Pejoratively. So that was the West Indies. The West, they called it the Western part of India for whatever reason, because he, that was the, to the West of Europe. Even today, the cricket team, the, that region is still called the West Indies, even though it's not India. Indies means the, the parts, various parts of India, the Indies. So it's called the West Indies, which is completely incorrect. It's just the Caribbean region or whatever you want to call it. But it's still called the West Indies. So that's what the Europeans discovered first. Uh, why did they have to look for India? Because the Turks had cut off the land route to India. Uh, the land route passed through Anatolia, present-day Turkey, the Tur which was uh, part of the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, for a very long time. The Turks conquered this region and therefore the Europeans were no longer able to go eastwards via land in order to reach India for whatever they needed from India, or the trade activities and all that. But that's why it was a great quest for them to rediscover India, a different sea route maybe to, towards India. So, Christopher Columbus said, though that land I've discovered in the West is India. Eventually, the Europeans uh, realized this was uh, a complete mystic. It's a new landmass that he has discovered, but they still kept on calling it the West Indies. Right? And therefore, when, they, when India was eventually, uh, when Vasco da Gama eventually rediscovered India, going around the Cape of Good Hope uh, from South of Africa, uh, that part of India, the, Euro the Europeans started calling it East India. 
even today some people call india east india for whatever reason and that's why the the english when they they founded their company at the at the end of the 17th century which century 17th most likely uh, yeah something 16th century at the end of the 16th century yeah so they called it the east india company for that reason because they now d- distinguished between the west indies and the east indies and even indonesia and the the islands the archipelago of that region is called the east indies even today yeah so it's just what the europeans called it and the, and so so that's how they distinguished the two geographical regions and that is in short why the english called their company the east india company fulrani das says uh, take this question with my third attempt all right is or are there any nations that never got invaded by another country and which never invaded another country in their history if there are then what are they is there any nation that has never been invaded uh, some some people were saying in response to this question that japan has never been invaded well fyi japan is under us occupation since 1945 japan has been invaded successfully and conquered and subjugated and colonized <laughs> by the us it is currently under us occupation yeah so japan is not the case and even if you go back in japanese history to the 12th 13th whatever century 13th 14th century you had the mongol invasion of japan which was not entirely successful the kamikaze divine divine wind happened and that's why the mongols were unable to uh complete their conquest of uh Japan but they did land on the island of Tsushima etc and so on so Japan is not the case some people say Switzerland well Switzerland has been invaded multiple times conquered by the Romans by Julius Caesar who conducted a, a, a full uh, genocide of the of the Helvetian tribes the the Celtic tribes in the in the region in Switzerland and again the Habsburg empire invaded and conquered parts of Switzerland or maybe the whole of it William Tell is the great uh, great rebel who fought against them and so on even the french uh conquered switzerland so switzerland is not the case uh, i don't think there is any nation or any geographical part of the world which has never been invaded and never conquered you go back far enough in history every part of the world has uh, suffered invasions and for some time at least conquests by uh, other powers is there any country that never invaded another country eh, well none that i know of people have been for for the longest time on social media people were claiming that india is a peaceful pacifistic country we haven't invaded anybody ever well that's a complete lie obviously india has uh, invaded other geographical regions multiple times as we know i hope you know so i can't think of any nation that has never been invaded and which has never invaded anybody yeah maybe the swiss never tried invading anybody if you look at the nation state of switzerland maybe maybe that could be the case perhaps so yeah th- that's just how it is if you look, go back go back long enough in history you will find all kinds of such things happening the nation state system is a very new system it goes back to the uh, um the treaty of westphalia which is quite recent relatively speaking and so on yeah so that's the answer okay miguel diaz says you never miss a chance to portray emperor ashok equivalent to somebody like aurangzeb 
Ashok never fought a single war after Kalinga and was crucial in spreading influence of Buddhism throughout the subcontinent. It is also said he gave, he didn't give up on give up on be, being a devotee of Lord Shiva even after the, adopting Buddhism. So one cannot hate him on the basis of not being a Hindu. No, 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 no. No, 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 Miguel Diaz K. What you say, Miguel? Not true. It's not, not true. Come on, what you say? I don't hate Ashok. What makes you say I hate Ashok? I admire the guy. He was somebody worth of uh, worthy of admiration. Think about it. You want to compare Ashok and Aurangzeb? All right, let's do it. Ashok. Um, yeah, well, he came to power. He became the emperor of India at the expense of his siblings. It is said apparently that he had a hundred of his siblings, brothers or half-brothers, etc. killed in order to become emperor, which obviously could be an exaggeration. Maybe he had 10, 20 of them killed. In those days, emperors used to have multiple wives. His father, uh, Bindusar, may have had multiple wives and may have had lots of children. It's possible. Yeah. So we know that there was, and we know that Ashok was not the the, uh, crown prince. Somebody, one of his brothers was the crown prince, and he took over power. He, he took over power at the expense of his brother and everybody else. Yeah, sure, he did that. Uh, very Machiavellian, right? And then uh, he started following the precepts of uh, both the Dharma, which was at that time a reasonably obscure sect of Dharma. And it is known that he was a very cruel person. He had lots of people tortured, imprisoned, beheaded, killed, etc. He apparently enjoyed cruelty. Chand Ashok, he was called. He had something called Ashok's Hell, which is a prison in which people were tortured. And apparently he he had, he had ordered the, the killing of 18,000 Ajivikas, yeah, right? People who belonged, who belonged to that uh, particular sect or philosophical school of thought of Hinduism and so on. Yeah, he was cruel. Okay, we get it. But what is also true is that he unified the entire Indian subcontinent. He, he made, he, he, made the entire region extremely prosperous. There was rule of law. There was discipline. There was rule of law. Uh, He indulged, he engaged in diplomacy with faraway nations. He spoke about uh, various kings that he was in contact with. Uh, Ptolemy of Egypt, uh, certain uh, kings in uh, in the West, in parts of Europe, in uh, the Middle East, etc. He sent embassies to all these kings. He spread Dharma far and wide. He said that the regions as far as Greece and West of Greece had been conquered by Dharma. Right, that's what he said. He also had uh, contacts with. Uh, he sent embassies to Swarna, Swarna Bhumi, which obviously refers to Thailand, to 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 uh, Sri Lanka. He sent his own uh, uh, children, uh, Sangamitra and uh, what's his name, Mahindra, to Sri Lanka. Established good relations there, spread dharma and so on. So he may have been uh, a cruel king to those who were uh, who who posed a threat to him. He may have enjoyed uh, certain sadistic tendencies, but overall, he improved the quality of life and the prosperity of his people. Vishnu Gupta Janaka said that the highest morality for a king is that his nation and its people should prosper. He's, Ashoka certainly ensured that. He built far more than he destroyed. He spread dharma far and wide. He built so many schools, viharas, monasteries, temples, what not. Right? Yeah, sure. He 
of course we cannot condone what he did in kalinga uh, the conquest of kalinga lots of um, more than 100000 soldiers died in that battle and i don't know what else he did over there so yeah that is a dark chapter in history but if you look at it from a larger perspective overall the entire uh, subcontinent prospered significantly under ashok right and he did stamp out all dissent with an iron fist i think his grandfather's mentor would have been very proud of him my boy good job his grandfather's mentor his grandfather was chandragupta maurya obviously and his grandfather's mentor was vishnugupta chanakya ashok lived his life on chanakyan principles as per chanakyan principles we don't know if ashok and chanakya were con- uh, knew each other uh, we'll have to look at the dates when they are supposed to have lived but it's possible that as a child he may have known his grandfather's mentor possibly and anyway vishnugupta chanakya's influence still exists today so obviously ashok would have followed that so i think overall ashok was an extremely great man a great emperor of india sure some he was not lord ram he was not as benevolent and kind as lord ram and he was certainly not as kind and and nice as the, the various gupta emperors and so on and so forth yeah sure but he was overall great for india so certain character flaws may exist that's okay and i would say that today's politicians can learn a thing or two today's leaders of india could possibly learn a thing or two from ashok i'm not saying this or that overall holistically all right don't get me wrong so i think he is ashok is a man who's that is worthy of admiration from a realistic pragmatic perspective from a chanakyan perspective hating ashok no i don't hate ashok by any means whatsoever i th- uh, let me repeat let me reiterate ashok is worthy of admiration he overcame so many obstacles he overcame he overcame the greatest of odds and succeeded and took his entire civilization forward he is worthy of admiration now what about this individual called aurangzeb aurangzeb was a barbarian aurangzeb did the exact opposite of ashok ashok made his country his nation his civilization prosperous and its people prosperous overall holistically he did his utmost to spread his nation's culture worldwide he turned dharma into a global force that is what ashok did what did aurangzeb did uh, do he tried to stamp out the native culture and civilization in the of the land that he ruled he may have been born in india he 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 acted like a foreign barbarian he tried to bring in a foreign culture into india and and impose it by force by destroying everything that was of any value in the in the in the land he ruled and obviously we cannot condone we cannot disregard the fact that he indulged in outright genocide in india and some some people will say oh what's the proof what's the evidence blah 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 well you don't trust me okay some people say i am uh, i am this or that or whatever i am i cannot be trusted well i suppose you would trust your masters in the us i suppose you would trust the new york times here's what the new york times has to say population control marauder style okay you can look this up online this is a new york times infographic right it's about the various uh, genocidal barbarians who have ruled various parts of the world and uh, our dear old aurangzeb figures very much in this where does he figure let me enlarge this take a look aurangzeb 
According to the New York Times figures and data, Aurangzeb was responsible for the deaths of 4.6 million Indians. All right, 4.6 million Indians is a genocide. And remember, this is the New York Times, which is very much anti-India. So these figures are are obviously extremely conservative figures. To reach the real figures of how many people Aurangzeb would have killed, you have to multiply this by at least ten. So that would bring him on the, on, in the same category as Mao Zedong. So that, yeah, that's that's the kind of uh, place that Aurangzeb occupies. Most likely, he killed way more Indians than that. All right. So there is no basis for comparing Ashok and Aurangzeb. One was a saint; the other was a devil. Ashok was a saint compared to Aurangzeb. So that's what I have to say to you, my dear friend Miguel Diaz. That's all I have to say to you. Right. Sikha Bhattacharya says, How was the end of the Indus Valley civilization and beginning of the Aryan civilization and was the beginning of Aryan civilization good for India? I am Arish. I study in the 8th standard. You changed my way of thinking, made me understand geopolitics, which I had never heard of before. Thank you. It's great to hear from you, uh, Arish, and I'm glad that in this early age you're you're interested in geopolitics, history, etc. Great to know that. Keep it up, all right? So, uh, what was the end of the okay Indus Valley civilization, Aryan civilization, etc.? See, these are foreign concepts. The Indus Valley civilization, which starts and ends, then Aryan invasion starts, and that is the result. Uh, that is the uh, that's what gives rise to India as it is today. That is what the way they teach history. The truth is this. There is unbroken cultural continuity in, in India going back at least 10,000 years. And there is undeniable archaeological evidence, lots of archaeological evidence that demonstrates that the, the culture that exists in India today, its predecessor culture existed even 10,000 years ago. So the culture is unbroken. You can see certain elements of culture throughout. You find statuettes of ladies from the so-called Saraswati Sindhu phase, the so-called Harappan or Indus Valley phase, in which those little statues of ladies have a vermilion, a Sindhu in their, in their, on their forehead, right? The same way Indian ladies still wear today. You find Shivalingas, Trishuls in the so-called Indus Valley or Harappan phase of India civilization. You find so many other examples of the Indian culture that still exists today in the so-called Harappan era. The uh, archaeologist John Marshall, the, who was the head of the ASI in the 1920s, 1930s, somewhere that, like that, he said that the Indus Valley culture is so dis, is so uh, remarkably, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing. He said it is so remarkably Indian that it is, it is virtually indistinguishable from present day Hinduism. That's what this Englishman said more than a century, about a century ago, right? So the culture and the civilization is the same. There is no such thing as Aryan civilization or Indus Valley civilization. There is only one thing called Indian civilization, which is an unbroken cultural uh, continuum, 10,000 plus years, right? So uh, you can say there were phases in India's civilization. There was a so-called, some people call it a pre-Harappan phase, whatever that is. Then there is the Harappan phase. Then there are other phases, later on phases, pre, and somewhere in there we have the Vedic phase. So according to our history textbooks, which are taught in school, uh, the Indus Valley phase was brought to an end. It was made to collapse by a foreign invasion, by an in invasion from ab abroad, by the so-called Aryan people. That is a lie. 
there is no such thing there is no evidence not a single scrap of evidence for that show me a single archaeological piece of evidence for an aryan invasion or migration or tourism or picnic and i will change my mind there is no such thing right so aryan civilization i mean the word arya in sanskrit means noble or civilized right so it's not something that came from abroad from outside it is something that emerged out of india india was called aryavarth and later on indians migrated westwards to various parts of the world westwards one of these migrations was to persia the parshwa clan of the vedic people migrated westwards settled down in what is now called persia after their name parshwa became persia and they started using arya as an ethnic self designation but arya originally means noble or civilized so if any people are to be called aryans it is the indians and the iranians also yeah that's it so there was no aryan civilization it's just indian civilization and the indus valley uh, what they call the indus valley civilization is a certain time phase time period of the 10000 plus year history of indian civilization so the point to be understood is that indian civilization did not start 4000 years ago or 5000 years ago whatever it is it has existed for more than 10000 years we have discovered archaeologists and marine marine archaeologists have discovered a sunken city in the gulf of khambath of the of the coast of gujarat which dates back at least 12000 years at least 12000 years and that looks exactly it is it is planned and designed just like the so called harappan cities so that tells you that the indian civilization goes back even beyond 10000 years maybe beyond 12000 years i mean if you if if they had the ability if our ancestors had the ability to construct a large massive well planned city 12000 years before today that ability would have developed over several thousand years right the the engineering knowledge etc would have developed it, it would not have appeared overnight that also takes time years centuries thousands of years to develop so indian civilization is the oldest known civilization in the entire known world yes uh, there was no aryan invasion that is an entire fabrication and today even the geneticists who have been who have been pushing that for for years are now coming around to claim to now amending their story to say that the so called step ancestry that also has an eastern origin whatever that eastern means and so on so uh, i hope that answers your question uh, keep it up keep studying keep learning and all the best sikha all right saurabh says how is the dating of the rigveda using sarkar al's study is there any possibility that the rigveda being older of the rigveda being older than 6000 bc as the saraswati was at in its peak around 7000 8000 bc or even before that what are your thoughts on this okay so i have written about this in the past so let me show you what that is what is this a study by sarkar al let's go there let me show you the actual research paper where is it this is the research paper it's uh, it's in nature it's from 2016 it says the title is oxygen isotope in archaeological bioappetites from india implications to climate change and decline of the bronze age harappan civilization and so on yeah so let's take a look at the abstract which is the summary the antiquity and decline of the bronze age harappan civilization in the indus ghaggar hakra river valleys is an enigma in archaeology weakening of the monsoon after 5000 bp 
and droughts throughout Asia is a strong contender for the Harappan collapse, although controversy exists about the synchronicity of climate change and the collapse of civilization. One reason for this controversy is a lack of continuous record of cultural levels and paleo-monsoon change in close proximity. We report a high-resolution oxygen isotope record of animal teeth bone phosphates from an archaeological trench itself at Birana, northwestern India, preserving all cultural levels of the civilization. Birana was part of a high concentration of settlements along the dried-up mythical Vedic river valley Saraswati, an extension of the Gagar River in the Thar Desert. Isotope and archaeological data suggest that the pre-Harappan started inhabiting this area along the mighty Ghagar Hakra River, fed by intensified monsoon from 9,000 to 7,000 kilo years, thousand years before present. The monsoon monotonically declined after 7,000 years, yet the settlements continued to survive from early to mature Harappan time. Our study suggests other, that other causes like change in subsistence, stra- subsistence strategy by shifting crop patterns other than climate change was responsible for Harappan collapse. So that is what it says and there's the whole details. You can look up the paper. It is available online. It is not behind a paywall. You can look it up. So that is the paper. That is what it says. Now, how do we use this to uh, to date the Rig Veda? Right? That's the question. So this paper says that the Indian monsoon started declining monotonically around five, earlier it was saying 7,000 BC, 7,000 years before, before present, whatever, five, six, 7,000 years before present, maybe 8,000. Around that time, the monsoon was very heavy, very heavy in India. Then it started declining monotonically, means it was a very slow, very gradual decline, very slow, very, very gradual. It took thousands of years for it to become so intense that the decline of the monsoon, that the great river Saraswati started drying out. So they clearly identified the Gagar Hakara River with the Saraswati. They call it, they still call it mythical. Today they don't call it mythical anymore in newer papers. It's now established that the great river that is spoken of in ancient Indian Vedic literature is the same as the enormous massive dry riverbed that we find in this region, which is a continuation of what is now called the, the Gagar Hakara River, which is now a seasonal river, which dries out uh, when it is not raining. So that is now clearly identified. There is no doubt about it that it is the Saraswati River, the, the Saraswati River of ancient Indian history. So how do we date the Rig Veda based on this? So they have found that this great river, the mother of Indian civilization, started drying out slowly with contempor- as, a, as a consequence of the monotonical decline of the Indian monsoon, which starts around 7,000 or so years before today. Right? Um, so as the monsoon declines, as the intensity of the monsoon declines, this river, which is a monsoon-fed, rain-fed river, also naturally starts declining. And eventually it dries out about about 3,000, 3,500 years before today, in large parts. It, it would have eventually uh, called, ended as a big lake, then which dried out, which is now the Thar Desert, the Rajasthan Desert. So... Now, in the Rig Veda, the river Saraswati is mentioned extensively. There are lots and lots of mentions of the great river Saraswati. And how is this river described? How is the great river Saraswati described in the Rig Veda? It is called the greatest of rivers. It is called a glorious river. It is described as a loudly roaring river. It is described as the mother of floods. All right? So, What does it sound like? Does it sound like a river in decline? 
or does it sound like a majestic mighty river in its prime clearly the rig veda is describing a river that is in its prime it is not describing a river that is in decline so when did the decline start around 7000 bc so or maybe 6000 bc whatever you want to call it or about 6 or 7000 years before today that is for sure so what does that lead us to conclude logic 1 plus 1 equals 2 it tells you that the rig veda has to be would have been written around the time when the river was in its prime not when the river had already started declining which means the rig veda is at least 6 7000 years old based on this rough approximation there is no other way of interpreting the data the rig veda is not describing some mythological imaginary river it's describing a very real physical river loudly roaring river the mother of floods and there's only one dry river bed in this region that is loud enough to fit the description that is large enough to fit this description which is the well it is now which is now definitively identified as the extinct river saraswati so that is the logic behind this which tells us that the rigveda would have been written at least 6000 years before today around that time so that totally completely annihilates and falsifies the aryan invasion or migration or tourism or picnic myth which says that the aryans inv- arrived in india about 1500 bc around 1500 bc the river was mostly dry in the southern uh, southern regions near the sea it simply cannot describe that that dried out river so and 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 it, this this uh, narrative says that the aryans who in, arrived in india settled down in the saptasindhu region in western india and then wrote the the rigveda and the vedic literature well if they arrived at the time they would have found a dried out region yeah so this completely destroys this false narrative completely totally so we can roughly date the rigveda at around 6000 or 7000 years before today maybe older but at least that old right next question toshit says will the britishers ever accept a brown prime minister like rishi sunak or priti patel the britishers my dear friend will accept anybody their masters tell them to accept who owns the uk who actually controls and runs the uk is the it's the americans the uk is a vassal state of the us the us completely owns essentially the uk so the british will do whatever the americans tell them to do yeah there will be a democratic process for show and all that and somebody will be appointed as the prime minister within the party there will be this inter party intra party struggle and there are three four candidates who are still uh, standing and one of them will be appointed uh, i'm not sure if preeti patel is still in the fray rishi sunak seems to be the the front uh, the, the the main contender right now so if the if the overlords deem that rishi sunak will do a good job as our servant then he will be <laughs> appointed as a prime minister and the people of britain will quietly accept it they will have been accepting whatever has been done to them for the past 30 40 years essentially since uh, that guy tony blair became the prime minister uh, he is described as a us poodle which is a rather unkind thing to say but some people have described him described him that way so ever since tony blair came to power the entire us uk dynamic changed uh, and uh, yeah so so that's when the uk became a complete vassal state of the us and that's when strangely enough the irish insurgency ended strangely enough isn't that strange anyhow 
Okay, two questions. Rahul says, since Boris Johnson will be replaced as the UK PM and Rishi, Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt are considered the prime candidates, who among these is more pro-India? Who should be the next PM that's so that India benefits the most? Harshit says, uh, thank you, Harshit. I was having this question for a long time. After Boris Johnson resigned as PM, there's speculation about who will be the next PM. What type of UK PM do you think perfectly suits fits our, our interest? A good UK PM who looks India as a trustworthy, reliable friend can help each other diplomatically or aggressive anti-India PM, get out of the colonial commonwealth, other things. Um, and what else uh, we can't afford to do when we have a pro-India UK PM? All right. See, UK prime ministers, their actual stated job description is to serve the UK's national interest. Now, the UK is a colony of the UK, US. And therefore, all UK prime ministers who last any reasonable amount of time have their, are aligned with US geopolitical interests. And the US doesn't see India as a nation that should be allowed to rise too much. They have already made a massive mistake with, the chi with, with China. They will not make that mistake again with India. And therefore, any prime minister who comes to power in the UK and lasts for a long time will be able to last only because they are aligned with the American geopolitical interests and, and are a good servant to the US. That's just how the way, the, the way it is. And therefore, no matter who comes to power, it, it's, not, it's not going to be the case that that person will be very pro-India or even moderately pro-India. The UK is not an important nation today. It is not some massive major geopolitical power. The UK is not even a second-rate power. The UK is, is a colony. It's a vassal state of the US, just like Japan is today. Japan is even worse, far, further down, going down the road. Japan is under permanent US occupation. Well, there is a certain element of US occupation in the UK as well. Uh, all the UK's uh, so nuclear missiles are essentially American nuclear missiles. And I don't think the um, the UK Prime Minister has the launch codes for the codes for those missiles. Yes, those missiles are placed in British submarines, but I don't think the UK Prime Minister has the authority to launch those missiles, even if he or she wants to. So that is how far it is gone. Those missiles are American missiles. The UK had its own space program, which was ended, dismantled. Yeah, they had good rockets. They had uh, hydrogen peroxide fueled rockets, if I remember. They were dismantled for whatever reason. So that's how it is. So whoever comes to power in the UK is not going to be uh, in any way pro-India. Even if Rishi Sunak comes to power, obviously he's a guy who has Indian origin. It makes no difference. He's going to serve his masters. He's going to serve the UK and the US. He is not going to be pro-India in any way whatsoever. Neither is Priti Patel going to be pro-India. If at all, they will be under more pressure to demonstrate that they are loyal to the, to the empire and not to India. So they, they may end up being even more anti-India than, than other prime ministers have been. Just to demonstrate that we are not, uh, you know, we are loyal to, to the master. So that's how it is. That's how I see it. It makes no difference to India who comes to power in the UK. The UK doesn't matter. The UK is not an important geopolitical force. The UK is a subsidiary. It's a, it's an, it's a, it's a colony essentially of the US. And the real power is in the US. So the UK doesn't matter. It's not even a second-rate geopolitical power. It's a third-rate geopolitical power. That's all it is. I am so I apologize if I offended everybody, but that is a fact.
Okay, Shweta says, if the US is the superpower in the current ruling empire, how come the pound currency is the strongest in the world and not the USD? And could you tell a bit more about the finance geopolitical situation, the collapsing dollar hegemony, please? Okay, let's take the first part of the question. If the US is the superpower and the current ruling empire, how come the pound is the strongest in the currency in the world, not the USD? The strength of a currency is not determined by exchange rates. It's not determined by exchange rates. There are certain currencies that have an even stronger exchange rate than the pound compared to the US dollar. It means nothing. The strength of a currency is determined by how widely that currency is in use and whether the, that currency is the global reserve currency or not. The only currency that can be called the global reserve currency, reserve currency today is the US dollar. And this happened in 1944-45 when the, uh, as a consequence of the Bretton Woods Agreement, the Bretton Woods Conference and the agreement that came out of it, which officially made the US dollar the reserve currency, the global reserve currency. It was at the time linked to the price of gold, which was then removed, which was then removed by President uh, Nixon. And the US dollar then became linked with the price of petroleum. It's now called the petrodollar, right? So, um, all oil transactions for the longest time were only done in US dollars and it's it's a globally accepted currency. You go to any nation in the world, you, you give them US dollars, they will take it. Yeah, The UK pound may not be that well accepted the way the US dollar is. So that is why the US dollar is the global reserve currency and that uh, the exchange rate means nothing actually. You can have a nation with which which has a currency that is equal to 10 US dollars. It doesn't mean that, that that nation is a superpower or that that currency is stronger. The strength of a currency is measured, is determined by the acceptance worldwide. And it is precisely because the US dollar is the global reserve currency. It is because of this fact that the US is able to impose sanctions on any nation at will, which cuts that nation off from the global uh, trade uh, infrastructure and it, it imposes enormous hardships on that nation because essentially sanctions means no other nation is allowed to trade or deal with that nation in US dollars and in a no other currency. So, and you know, the global system, the SWIFT, etc., is all uh, denominated essentially based on the US dollar and so on. So that is what the fact is. The, the exchange rate may, means nothing at all. Coming to the next question, Akhil says, why dollar to rupee conversion going on increasing day by day india is india taking precautionary measures to control it all right so yes we are we are witnessing a certain trend in the india in the indian rupee versus us dollar exchange rate the indian rupee is declining it, it has reached 80 dollars yeah uh, 80 rupees per dollar or or it's somewhere around the, that threshold what does it mean it means it doesn't mean that the indian rupee is declining it's 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 no longer valuable india is doing very poorly is it so well the problem with the indian media is that they give you cherry picked data they don't give you the large content the big big picture let me offer you all the big picture shall i let's do it give me a cent to share my screen now you will be able to see the what's really happening in the world take a look at this so this is the way currencies are performing against the dollar. This is from December 31, 2021 until essentially right now. Today is July 17th. This is until July 15th, 2022. See what's going on. 
every single currency listed here has dropped in value against the dollar. The dollar is getting stronger since December 31, 2021, since the beginning of this year. Yeah, the Mexican uh, the Mexican currency has dropped about one percent. Indonesian the Indonesian rupiah has dropped about five percent. The South Korean won has dropped more than ten percent. The British pound has dropped about twelve or so percent. The uh, euro has dropped about eleven percent or so. The Japanese yen is about seventeen or eighteen percent weaker. The Turkish lira is almost twenty five percent weaker than the US dollar. There is a global trend of all currencies suddenly, gradually becoming weaker against the US dollar. Where does India figure over here? India is doing very well. Look here. The Indian rupee has dropped about 6 or 7% since the beginning of the year, which is, compared to all the other currencies, rather doing very well. Do you see now? Do you see the big picture? It's not that, that the Indian currency, the Indian economy is, is declining. This is a trend that's happening worldwide. The US dollar is the global reserve currency and the US is doing something. I'm not sure what it is doing, but it has been able to manufacture this trend. As you can see, every single currency of any note in the world, every single currency that matters in the world is declining. And India is doing rather well compared to most other currencies. Does your Indian media show you this? Does your favorite analyst show you this? No, they will not show you this. So that's what's going on. The only currency, the only currency that has done well in these days is the Russian ruble. Even though the Americans have dumped every conceivable sanction on Russia, still the Russian ruble is way stronger now, today, than it was at the beginning of the Ukraine invasion. Because they, they clearly anticipated everything the US will throw at them and they were very well prepared. And they knew exactly what to do about this. The Russians, well, they, they, they hold Europe's energy security in their hands. Uh, the, the Europeans need Russian gas in order to power their heaters and, and, and for electricity, etc. They depend on Russia. They depend almost entirely on Russia for their energy needs. And secondly, the, the, the Russians have linked the Russian ruble with the price of gold. It's now on the gold standard. And they have demanded that anybody who buys petroleum or, or natural gas or anything from Russia must pay in Russian rubles, which means now there is a demand for rubles. When something is in demand, the price rises. So the only currency that's doing well is the Russian ruble. All other currencies have, uh, have been declining since the beginning of the year, as you see here. India is doing rather well compared to other nations. India is doing better than the, the Indian rupee, is doing much better than the euro. It, the Indian rupee is doing much better than the British pound. The Indian rupee is doing much better than the Japanese yen. The Indian rupee is doing much better than the Turkish lira and so on and so forth. So do not allow the media to fool you. Look at the bigger picture and that's the bigger picture. Utkarsh says, recently we heard that Lithuania has blocked the railway line from Russia to Kaliningrad and Finland and Sweden are joining NATO. Could we see something happening at the Swalki corridor and what might be Russia's future course of action and where could all this lead the world scenario to? Yes. All right. Let's take a look at the map. We have to see the map at least a few times during my episodes. So let's take a look at the map. Where's the map? Here is the map. So we're talking about Lithuania, Kaliningrad. So first of all, some of you may be asking yourselves, what is Kaliningrad? 
So I hope you all know where Russia is. You know where India is? Yes. Go north, you have Russia. Go westwards, you have Moscow. You can see Moscow here. What is Kaliningrad? Kaliningrad is a Russian enclave. You see this? This here? This is Kaliningrad. Kaliningrad is a port city in this entire region, which is Russian territory, is called Kaliningrad. Now, it is cut off from Russia. It doesn't have a, a connection with the Russian mainland. So it, that's why it's called an exclave, an exclave, Russian exclave. Uh, so there is a railway line or there is a connection that Russia had through land with Kaliningrad, which, like you say, ran from Lithuania. Now, the Lithuanians have decided to stop allowing Russia access through their territory to Kaliningrad. They have blocked the Russian access. Uh, so that's one uh, development that's happened in recent times. Uh, the Russians obviously have access to Belarus. Belarus is like, like a Russian vassal state or like a Russian colony, essentially. Yes. Russia may in the future, in the in the near future, perhaps place nuclear missiles in Belarus, which tells you how far deep uh, Belarus is in the Russian orbit. And so, uh, Utkarsh is talking about the Suwalki corridor. That maybe we could see some military action in the Suwalki corridor. Where is the Suwalki corridor? The Suwalki corridor is this region here, between Belarus and Kaliningrad along the Lithuania-Poland border, which is about 20, 30-40 kilometers maybe. That's how long it is. So uh, Utkarsh is saying, could there be some military action in which there is a there is some Russian uh, advance along this region in order to uh, re-establish contact with Kaliningrad through land? I think such an eventuality would be far-fetched. The Russians, I don't believe they want to open up too many uh, conflicts at the same time. They are already in, uh, engaged in this major conflict in Ukraine. They are slowly, steadily, step by step, without any time pressure, taking over parts of Ukraine. I'm not sure how far they would like to go, but I am sure that they want eventually regime change in Kiev. So that's already going on. Uh, the Americans obviously are staying out of it. They are using proxy warfare in Ukraine. Now, I think it would be highly inadvisable for Russia to, to open up a new war. I mean, you cannot fight multiple wars at the same time unless you want to end up losing all of them. And we can see lots of examples in history of people of, of nations that have tried to fight too many wars at the same time and they ended up losing. Germany is a great example of that. During the time, during the First World War and the Second World War, they bit off too, far more than they could chew. So I don't think Moscow will do anything right now. Right now, Moscow can access can access Kaliningrad through the Baltic Sea. So there is this major port here in the north, Saint Petersburg. They could send supply ships, etc., through the Baltic Sea to Kaliningrad, and therefore thereby resupply the city or or whatever they need to do, they can do it that way through sea. And they can also have overflights. They can use. Uh, they can. Uh, have connection via planes, via aircraft. So that's what Russia will do right now. Obviously, this, what Lithuania has done, will not be forgotten. Yes, I'm sure they will pay Lithuania back when the time is right. I mean, that that's what they would want to do. Will it happen or not? We don't know. But yes, that is uh, obviously a hostile action that Lithuania has taken. And right now, Lithuania, Lithuania probably has calculated that we are safer with the Western bloc, with NATO. Yes. 
and uh, they must have calculated that the US and NATO can save them or safeguard them or protect them from Russia's wrath. And that may be the correct calculation as of today. But actions have long-term consequences. So let's see how that goes. This is something that the Russians will not forget, obviously. When it comes to Finland and Sweden joining NATO, that's not big. That's not a big deal. The Russians will not do anything about that. Finland and Sweden are anyway de facto in the Western orbit, in the US orbit, in the NATO's in the in the NATO orbit. So making it formal is not going to change much in the real world. It's just like putting a paper, uh, you know, a stamp on it. That's it. They're already very much in the NATO orbit. So making it official will not really change anything on the ground. It's already de facto the case that they are part of NATO or in the, on the same page as NATO. So I would say that there is not a very monumental development. Moscow has always known that the, fin, the Finns have been on the side of NATO. And so have been the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Danes. So that is where we are. I don't foresee any immediate uh, escalation of hostilities in the Suwalke corridor. I don't see anything happen, happening right now. The Russians can still resupply Kaliningrad and they can still contact Kaliningrad. So things will go on as they are right now. But this could be possibly something that leads to a future conflict, maybe several years in the future. That is a possibility. Immediately right now, I don't foresee any uh, any hostilities escalating out of this as of today, as of right now. Right, next question. Akash says, in a documentary that I recently watched, an American government official was saying that China is too strong for India to handle in every sector, including the military. It treats Arunachal Pradesh as its own land of historical significance, calling it Southern Tibet. He connected this with a similar excuse that Putin gave before attacking the Donbass region and Ukraine at large. He inferred from this, that time is taking for India before it loses these territories and that as the Russia-China relationship has improved quite a lot, India shouldn't accept, expect any help from Russia and instead turn towards the West for alliances. Your view? We know that China is currently way stronger than India. That, that doesn't have to be, I mean, that's not a matter of dispute at all. All you have to do is to look at the size of the economies. India, India's economy is about one-fifth that of China. China's economy is five times bigger than India's economy. And, and therefore, they have five times as much money that they can invest in the military for their military budget than India can. So there is a significant asymmetry at play over here. And yes, we know that the Chinese uh, claim Arunachal Pradesh. It happened after Mr. Vajpayee officially recognized Tibet as part of China. The consequence of that recognition was that China immediately made a claim to Arunachal Pradesh and they are calling it South Tibet. We know that. It's, it's, it's been known for quite some time, for two decades almost, right? Um, so the American person you're referring to connected this with what Putin, with the kind of claims that Mr. Putin had over the Donbass region and parts of Ukraine. Yeah, it, in a way it's similar, but we have to remember this. Mr. Putin ordered the invasion of a non-nuclear armed nation. Ukraine doesn't have nukes. Ukraine has a massive army. Ukraine, the Ukrainian army is is larger than the all the armies of Western Europe put together. And yet, Mr. Putin has been able to achieve, I mean, progressively achieve his objectives. And let's say there are more objectives to be achieved, most likely. So you cannot compare India with Ukraine. The 
Russia-Ukraine dynamic is entirely dis- different from the China-India dynamic. Ukraine has never been a great civilization, a great nation. It's always been part of Russia, historically. Novorossiya, Novorossiya, Ukraina, the borderlands of Russia, new Russia, that's what it is. And Ukraine doesn't have a great uh, history of being a military force, military power and all that. So the Russians had been planning this for, I would say, a decade or so. And this was all executed properly. The Chinese may also be planning in the future to hopefully, maybe, do an invasion. They must be hoping for to, for the opportunity to arise, for them to possibly try an invasion of Arunachal Pradesh. That is always on the cards, yes. But India is not Ukraine. India is a vastly different nation. India, one very clear difference is that India has nuclear weapons. India has the delivery systems. India has multiple modes of delivering nuclear weapons. And there are certain red lines that no Indian government can afford to let the Chinese cross. You allow Arunachal Pradesh to fall to India, you are doomed as you are doomed politically. You will never ever come to power again. No Indian politician, leader or political party will ever allow such a thing to happen. We know that the Chinese have a better, more powerful military. That military is untested. Yeah. And they are completely exposed in Tibet. Let's go to Tibet. Let's take a look at the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. So we know where India is. North of India, north of Nepal, we have Tibet. Tibet is, is, is a, is, there, there is no forest cover there. Everything is clearly visible from the sky. We have satellites. India has satellites in the sky observing, well, various parts of the world that are of interest to us, may I say. So yes, we know what's happening in Tibet. We know exactly where the Chinese military positions are in Tibet, where their air bases are, where their uh, infantry, etc. bases are. The Indian positions may not be so visible. We may have certain, well, military military bases, etc., air bases, etc., missile bases, missile launching places, and so on, that are not visible because we have so much forest cover in the eastern part of India, in the far east of India, in Assam, Arunachal, etc. So, India has a massive advantage in this region, tactically speaking. And Tibet is at a much high, higher altitude than the Indian air bases, which means that the Chinese aircraft, uh, aircraft fighter planes, etc., if they were to, uh, to take off from Tibet, they would be able to carry a much smaller fuel load and weapons load than Indian aircraft that would take off from much lower altitudes, right? So the Chinese positions are completely exposed in Tibet and India has an air advantage over the Chinese. So if if any hostilities were to break out, let's say the Chinese go for Siliguri, India could immediately respond by taking out all the Chinese military bases in this region. All the airports, all the uh, army bases and whatnot. We have missiles that can take out these bases with pinpoint accuracy. Of course, the Chinese will also launch missiles and all. That would be war. But India is in a very good position to respond, retaliate and uh, neutralize any Chinese advance in this region. So my point is this. The Americans want India to essentially become a US vassal state. They want India to depend completely on them. And it's always good to, to show this big bogeyman, which is actually a real bogeyman. So, so India has no allies. Obviously, Russia cannot help India if there's a war between India and China. As of today, Russia is in no position to help India because they also depend on China for a number of things. 
So if there is a conflict between India and China, the Russians will stay neutral. They will urge restraint. They will urge a ceasefire. That is the best they can do. The Russians are supplying India with all kinds of, well, military equipment. Russia and China are historically antagonistic towards each other. In the future, there will be conflict between Russia and China. That is a given because they share such a long common border and they both eye each other's territory. Especially the Chinese are eyeing Russian territory. That being said, India is not a pushover. Indian military, the Indian military has been, will have been planning such scenarios, for such scenarios for a very long time. All the war gaming would be happening about about a, a possible Chinese incursion, misadventure into India and how to deal with it, various scenarios, what do we do about it, that will be happening all the time. So India is very well prepared and uh, the Americans can, yeah, well, they will do their best to, to persuade India to, to come into the American camp, but uh, that is not in India's long-term national interest. We will certainly cooperate with the US on a variety of, of, of issues and matters. Uh, from, on the economic front, we will, we, will give, we will extend full cooperation and collaboration to the US. On geopolitical matters, on security matters, we will give issue-based cooperation based on each issue on a case-by-case basis and so on. That's how it's going to be. We are obviously aware of the Chinese threat the only nation in Asia that can counter the Chinese, that the Chinese see, see as a threat, is India. So we are very well aware of it, and we would have taken all the precautions necessary for that. There is no way the Chinese can capture Arunachal Pradesh or try capturing it without suffering catastrophic consequences. That is a given. Okay, Man Vashishta says, during the Second World War, why did Thailand allow the Japanese to move their troops through their country to attack British Malaya? Was it a political move? And did Thailand face any kind of punishment from the Allies at the end after the end, end of the war? Excellent question. Let's take a look at the map, as always, to understand what we are talking about. So, Thailand obviously is our neighboring country over here. Uh, our island territories are just across the Andaman Sea from Thailand. And uh, yeah, so that's where Thailand is. British Malaya is over here. So in the Second World War, the Japanese had two options. They There was one school of thought in the Japanese military that Japan should take over Eurasia from the north. Uh, they already had uh, conquered parts of Manchuria. They had conquered, uh, they were on in the... Um, so they, they occupied the Manchuoku region, what they called Manchuoku, which is now present-day China. They were thinking about going through land, take over Mongolia, take over Central Asia and go westwards in, in that way, take over parts of Russia, present-day Russia. The other school of thought was Japan should do island hopping and take over Asia from the south along the uh, coastal regions of Asia. So eventually it was decided to take over Asia from the south and the Japanese military launched on its uh, advance during World War II. And very rapidly, they took over much of China, uh, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, and so on and so forth. And then they came up to Thailand. Now, Thailand at the time was an independent nation. It was a westernized nation. There had been a revolution kind of thing. Uh, the king was in a precarious position, the Chakri dynasty, King Rama the Sixth, I think it was. And... Uh, there was 
uh, there were two or three power centers in Thailand at the time. And Thailand had officially declared itself as a neutral nation in this entire conflict, the World War II, right? Now what happened is that the Japanese military proved to be completely irresistible. Nobody could stop it. It was taking over country after country. It was an extraordinarily effective fighting force. They had a very strong navy as well. And then they came to the doorstep of Thailand. And, and they, wanted to, they wanted to go further and take over Malay, like you say, British Malaya and Burma. And eventually they wanted to take over India as well. That was the objective of the Japanese. Thailand said, we are neutral. We will not allow you to, to come into our nation. You can go through other means. So in 1941, the Japanese invaded Thailand. It was a very brief invasion, five hours, five days, whatever it was. And the Thais then said, please stop, 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 stop. No, for, no more, no more. We will allow you to transit through our nation. And the Thai, Thai nation, the Thai government entered into an alliance with Japan. Why did they do it? Because they had no option. The two uh, choices that the Thai government had were choice A, Japan invades you and takes you over. And then they will see you as a hostile nation and they may do all kinds of atrocities like they were doing elsewhere. Choice B, allow the Japanese to use your territory as a transiting region. And to do that, you have to enter into an alliance with Japan. So the better option for them was to enter into an official alliance with Japan and allow them to go through Thailand. So that's what happened. So as a result of that, there was no occupation of Thailand by Japan. The Japanese military was definitely there. They used uh, Thailand as a waypoint, as a transit transiting region, but uh, the Thai government was allowed to stay in place. And uh, yeah, so Thailand was uh, able to save itself from a complete disaster by doing this. Obviously, eventually, the Japanese lost. They, they, where did they lose? They, where did they start losing? They they actually invaded India. They invaded Eastern India. They took over Myanmar, Burma, etc. They took over the Andaman, Nicobar Islands. Yeah. And then they invaded the eastern part of India, the far east of India, which is present in Nagaland and Manipur. So there was the Battle of Kohima and the Battle of Imphal on the outskirts of the city of Imphal. This was a long siege, actually. It was not something that happened in over one day. This was a long, long, long process. And in, the Japanese were finally beaten back from Imphal and Kohima. Along with the Japanese, we have the Indian National Army, the INA of Subhash Chandra Bose and so on. So the Japanese were beaten back from there and that's where they started losing and they kept on losing. That's what happened. Eventually, the Japanese were beaten back and we know what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Thailand was liberated. Well, they found themselves free of the Japanese and they had officially allied with Japan. So did they face any consequences, any punishment from the allies? Not really. They found themselves to be, again, very lucky. I think the allies, the Americans and the British, they uh, understood that the Thai government had actually, they had no choice. They faced complete disaster, complete destruction, or they could compromise and allow the Japanese to use Thailand as, as a transiting region. So in essence, Thailand allowed, agreed to become a vassal state of Japan. They officially, were, the government was officially still in power, but the Japanese could do whatever they wanted if they so wished. So the Thai government had no choice. It was, well, under complete duress. And that's probably why the Allies did not punish Thailand in any way. So that is the story, in brief.
Okay, Arhan Khan says, My grandfather is a Pashtun. He is very fair-skinned. He has blue eyes. I haven't seen an Indian person with blue eyes. So what can be the reason behind that? All right. So your grandfather is a Pashtun and he has blue eyes. Now, do we have Indians who have blue eyes? I think there are lots of Indians who have blue eyes. If you travel to certain parts of India, in Kashmir, we, we know that there are lots of people who have blue eyes, right? In Western India, in Rajasthan, Gujarat, even parts of Maharashtra, etc., you have people who have eyes that are not your typical brown Indian eyes. Look at my eyes. I have brown eyes. This, I believe, is the standard eye color in India among the among most Indians. In parts of Western India, Rajasthan, Gujarat, even parts of Maharashtra, we have people who have got green eyes, blue eyes, um, hazel eyes or whatever. In Rajasthan, Gujarat, and other parts of India also, I suppose, you will find people who have blonde hair, red hair, especially in childhood. So typically, a person who has blonde hair in childhood, as they grow older, their hair gets darker. That's typically what you see. Hair, hair color changes. I can You can think of many examples from sport. Indians follow cricket. Think of Bretley. Think of... Uh, what's that other guy? Think of Bretley. Think of uh, Sean Pollock. These guys... Sean Pollock had red hair when he, when he first came into the scene. Today, he's got dark hair. Bretley had blonde hair. Today, he's got dark hair as well. And so on. See, there are lots of other examples. Shane Watson. And so on. So... Typically, a person who is who is born with blonde hair, as they grow older, the hair becomes darker. But in Western India, in Gujarat, Rajasthan, other places, you will find people, especially children, who have blonde hair or blondish hair and reddish hair and eyes of, that are green or, or, or red or whatever, or, or sorry, blue or whatever. So let me give you one example that came in the news. Let me uh, bring, uh, let me share my screen. This was a person who... Uh, who lives in the West. It's a lady. Uh, let me show you this. For some reason, this, this made it to the news. It's a lady called Pooja Ganatra. I think she's of Gujarati origin. And uh, apparently she demanded a DNA test because she, she was shunned by some people. Am I really Indian or whatever? So as you can see, this lady has red hair. And uh, if you look at her eyes, I think her eyes are blue, right? Uh, let's look at the close-up. She's got blue eyes, red hair. Uh, yeah, this is how she looked as a kid. She's Indian. Uh, as you can see, um, these are her parents. They're Indian. And she looks uh, rather rather European. But obviously, she's of Indian origin. So that's just one example. There are lots of other people. It is obviously quite rare in India to find people who have got blonde hair or, or red hair or blue eyes. But it is there. And I think it is a little more prevalent in, in Gandhar, in Afghanistan. I think many Pashtuns have got blue eyes. Some of them even have red hair. So that's how it is. What are the genetic causes behind this? We, we, it's still to be seen. There is very little genetic uh, information or, or research that has been done thus far in India. We know that the Pashtuns are an extension of the North Indian population. Not the Turkmen's or the Turks or the Uzbeks or whatever, but the, but, but the Pashtuns. The Pashtuns are an extension of the Indian population or the of the or overall Indian population. Pashtuns, some Pashtuns claim they're they're of Jewish origin or whatever. Those are myths, my friends. You are not Jews. You are Hind Jews at most, at, at best. <laughs> so that's what it is. It is there. Fair skin, red hair, blonde hair, blue eyes. You find these characteristics among some Indians. It's a rare trait, but it is still there.
Okay, Naman says, I was going through an article about Chauhans having similar, having cultural similar, similarities with the Hungarian paganism and their culture. Uh, they drew similarities between the Chauhans, Chauhans of Shakambari and the White Huns, their Kula Devi, etc. Is there any real possible connection between the two or is it mere speculation? See, we know there were there were Hunnic invasions in India during the uh, time period of the Gupta Empire, about 1500 or so years, roughly before today. The Hunnic invasions happened in India in waves, wave after wave after wave of Hunnic invasions at the same time as the Huns were invading Rome as well. The Huns were a nomadic people who lived in across Eurasia. Where is Eurasia? Let me show you the map. Here is the map. So this entire region north of China, the Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and southern Russia region, all of this is the Central Asian steppe, the Eurasian steppe. And the Hunnic peoples have essentially the same origin as the Mongolian people. right? So they were nomadic people, a polytheistic culture. It is now called Tengrism or whatever. And they tried invading India for a very long time, wave after wave of invasion. Eventually, after the decline of the Gupta Empire, the Huns succeeded and various Hunnic principalities were set up into in India. And uh, there, they had a couple of kings who were very evil. Someone like uh, Mihirkul, who was an atheist and he oppressed everybody in Western India, in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. He, uh, the, the Buddhists were deeply unhappy with Mihirkul. So were the Brahmins and so on. So Mihirkul was evil. He was a very oppressive, cruel, unjust ruler. But later, Hunnic kings very rapidly became part of the Indian population. They uh, uh, they took up Indian culture. They became great uh, proponents of Dharma. Or some of them were uh, they they patronized Indian arts, cultures, sciences, and so on. And the Huns they established a kingdom in Afghanistan. I believe it was a Hunnish Hunnish Hunnic king who built the great statues of the Buddha in Bamiyan region and so on. They defended India for quite some time against the Islamic Turkic, Turkic invasions. Eventually, we know what happened. Now, the question is, are the Rajputs, the Chauhans, do they have anything, anything to do with the Huns? Do they have a Hunnic origin? Not quite. There could be a little bit of Hunnic, uh, you know, ancestry, possibly half a percent, one percent somewhere in most people in Western India, Northern India, because the Huns did assimilate into the Indian population. No doubt about that. The Huns uh, conquered certain parts of India, they established some kingdoms, and eventually they assimilated among the Indian population, just the way the Greeks did, same way. So people in North India, Western India, etc., Afghanistan, Pakistan, and so on, many of them would have a little bit of fractional Hunnic ancestry. But the great lineages, such as the Chauhans, the Chahamanas, etc., the various Rajput lineages, they date back to the Vedic era. So who are the Rajputs? Essentially, the Rajputs are the old aristocracy, the old uh, ruling lineages, the ruling clans. And uh, how many of these clans were there? Maybe 36 or maybe more or something. So these all originate in ancient India. There could be a little bit of Hunnic blood here and there. It doesn't mean that the origin is Hunnic. Or, if, or if from the Scythians or whatever. Scythians also, the Indo-Scythians, they invaded India about two, 2,000 or so India, years ago. They also established kingdoms, massive kingdoms in Western India. They also were great proponents of Dharma. And yeah, I mean, the Scythians themselves had Indian origin. 
so india is a big uh, receptacle of various such uh, nomadic races but the overall contribution to the indian gene pool was minimal nomads are very small in number they occupy a vast they ruled vast regions of eurasia but they were very small in numbers yeah so they could not really contribute much to the indian gene pool barring a few drops you know so uh, there are similarities culturally between the huns between the people of the balkan regions and so on with india there could be ancient ties but those relations that you see this cultural similarities originate in india let me give you an interesting example of that let's take a look at balkan culture shall we um let me show you let me once again share my screen go to google and take a look at albanian culture for instance albania is a small nation in the western in, in the balkans albanian culture albanian dresses etc if you look at traditional albanian dresses etc you will see some turkic some turkish uh, style in that you can see some some turkish influence but overall it seems in some ways quite similar to the dressing style and the culture of people in western india rajasthan gujarat etc in some ways it's quite similar to that especially the way the men uh, dress you know check it out so there are similarities now how do this what is the origin of these similarities and all that we don't quite know nobody has bothered to research this in any great detail but it's there we can see that there is some connection there we don't know what the connection is so there are connections and all that but it doesn't mean that all of this came from abroad india is the oldest civilization if there is any transmission of culture it is outwards from india so um there is no evidence whatsoever that the chahmanas the chauhans etc have a foreign origin or any other rajput clan all the rajput clans are of indian origin okay rinigan the fox says it is said in the puyas in the, that the imphal valley was underwater centuries back many centuries back and the first dry land is known to be the kangla during excavation pottery that is old, as old as 17 to 21000 years old carbon dating was found in the kangla region does it mean that the first early settlement in kangla was 20000 years old is there any archaeological evidence that the kangla might have been the first dry place in the imphal valley and how long ago would that have dried out okay so we are talking about manipur do you all know where manipur is i suppose people would not know let's so let's take a look at the map first in order to geolocate the region that we are talking about which part of india are we talking about manipur is in the far east of india which other people call northeast india here is manipur this is manipur the city of imphal and that's where you have the kangla the kangla is an ancient fort that is at least 2000 years old and uh, apparently there is pottery that's found that's found there that's about 17 21000 years old so let's take a look at where the kangla is so according to the puyas the puyas are the old literature of of uh, of the manipuri people so according to the puyas uh, the kangla was the first dry region the first dry land in the entire world uh, so if you see the imphal region it's a valley the imphal region is it's called the imphal valley it is surrounded by hills 
by i believe seven rings of hills you can't quite see it very clearly here you would need google earth or something to understand that very well but as you can see it's it's a flat piece of land flat region of land there is a big lake here the loktak lake very great place for tourism and around this valley you have seven rings of hills so it's a very inaccessible region it's very hard to reach there unless you go by plane obviously which makes it very easy and according to manipuri tradition the kangla was the first uh, place over here that were that had dry land so it is possible that in the past this entire valley was submerged it was flooded we see some evidence of that in the loktak lake which is the deepest the, the lowest point in this region so maybe uh, 2000 years ago this entire valley may have been flooded it it, it is possible uh thus far sufficient research has not been done about that so we don't know but if the oral tradition or the written tradition in the puya says that it could be true so you could do some analysis of the region to find out now the kangla region the kangla fort is in the heart of imphal city yeah over here there's a gate and there's a moat around it and uh, there is this uh, temple the pakangba temple and there is the ancient royal palace which is no longer there it is an archaeological site this region over here is an ancient archaeological site and there could be much more if you go there you will see that there is so much that is underground and uh, needs to, and uh, remains to be discovered so it is quite possible that uh, see according to the royal chronicle of manipur the chaitarol kumbaba kumbaba uh, the uh, ningthauja dynasty may have started around 36 ad that is one version the other version says it is like 3500 years old so uh, even that is not quite well known yet because nobody is doing any research the i, I wonder what the great historians in the manipur university are doing what are they doing why are they why are they researching this anyway so uh, according to what said here some pottery has been discovered there that is 17 to 21000 years old that is astonishing if it is true so i haven't found from my very cursory research thus far uh, any evidence of this claim that pottery has been found that is 7 17 or 21000 years old i don't think there's any pottery anywhere in the world from my knowledge that is that old so i will have to look into this further but just to show all of you where the kangla fort is and uh, yeah uh, so i would be skeptical about this claim that there is pottery that's 17 to 21000 years old that would revolutionize world history actually so i will do some further research to try and find the source of this claim but uh, about your other questions uh, it is quite likely it is quite possible that maybe kangla the kangla fort region was the first part of the imphal valley that became dry and eventually the whole valley because of climate change or whatever dried out apart from the loktak lake it is possible so it's a very interesting part of india and, and a great place for tourism okay lanchin bus says what's your opinion on iran and azerbaijan trying to claim that polo originated in their land persia and trying to declare it as, as their national sport they said that the moguls qutbuddin aibak brought polo to india and it was, it was taken by the british from india and he died playing polo okay listen they can claim whatever they want some people claim that even chess originated from persia we know that chess originated in india there is undeniable evidence from the uh, from western india the port of lothal in gujarat which is now an archaeological site they dis- they discovered a chess board made out of rock over there yeah with chess pieces 
that dates back about 4 5000 years before today so it's undeniable that chess originated in india and nobody is now able to dispute the claim now some people are trying to claim that iran or azerbaijan is the birthplace birthplace of polo once again that's a lie polo again originated in manipur okay manipur is the birthplace of polo the british discovered polo in manipur the world's oldest polo ground is in imphal let me once again show you the show you the map show you the map where is imphal this is imphal right we were, we were in imphal where is the polo ground it's somewhere in the center of imphal somewhere in the central region of imphal maybe it's here yes this is the world's oldest polo ground it is around at least 2000 years old right so the british discovered polo in manipur they started playing it maybe the iranians were playing some game that is similar to that but it is not as old as the one that was played in manipur now let me show you what this polo ground actually looks like the world's oldest polo ground just give me a second okay let me share that All right, let's share the screen and let's take a look at the Imphal Polo Ground, which is the world's oldest polo ground. This is what it looks like. It is still in use. This this uh, polo ground is still in use. We gave the, the world the game of polo. Uh, they play tournaments there all the time. International tournaments in Imphal City in uh, in the world's oldest polo ground. So let us let it be very clear that Manipur. is the birthplace of polo not iran not azerbaijan not not whatever else they can keep claiming it but that makes no difference it's like trying to claim that sumo wrestling originated in iran <laughs> that sort of thing you know uh various people try to appropriate other other cultures uh, uh, discoveries and inventions cultural appropriation they are trying to claim that greece was the origin of indian mathematics you know that sort of thing the the turks are trying to claim that feta cheese is turkish it's not it's greek and so on so let's be clear the origin of polo i don't know about kutbud kutbul the naibak the turk or whatever it's manipur nowhere else manipur swapnil says what do you think about the three country proposal with respect to the israel palestine conflict in which gaza can merge with egypt and the west bank can merge with jordan as these territories share historic cultural ties with those countries and the rest of israel remains under israeli rule okay so there are three proposals let me show you once again what these proposals what what this, what this region looks like instead of going to the map let me show you an image of a map of this region that is color coded for better understanding so this is the region all right the, what is the west bank uh let me show you the bigger perspective first then i will show you this image so that you know you get a better idea let's go to the to the actual map first let's uh, move out of imphal and go westwards all right zooming out zooming out let's go to the mediterranean region and this here is the region that we are talking about israel jordan egypt syria and so on so this is israel and if you zoom in over here this is the west bank why do they call it the west bank it is the west bank of the river jordan you will find a river here the jordan river right so the west bank region is the western bank is is on the western bank of the jordan river now there are three now let me show you and and to the south you have egypt as i hope you know 
to the west of Israel, to the east of Israel, you have Jordan. To the northeast, you have Syria. To the absolute north, you have Lebanon. And to the e to the west and south, you have Egypt. Now, let me show you that image again for better understanding because it is color coded. So there are three proposals. There is a one nation proposal which says that Israel should merge with Gaza and the West Bank. There should be only one state, one nation, and also the Golan region possibly. And that should be the only solution, just one nation. There is a two-state proposal which says that the West Bank region should become independent, an independent Palestinian state, and the other state should be Israel. The third proposal is a three-nation proposal which says that Gaza should merge with Egypt, the West Bank should merge with Jordan, and Israel, Israel remains independent. These are the three different proposals. One state proposal, two state proposal, and three state proposal. Now, so that, that's what it actually is. Uh, these are the three solutions or proposals. Now, what, which, which of these is most likely? The question is, why would Israel give up so much territory? What does it gain in exchange? Yes, it will gain some peace for some time in exchange. But remember, just, just like India and Pakistan, if someone like Manmohan Singh were to give away Kashmir to Pakistan, do you think the India-Pakistan conflict would end? No. It will not end. The Pakistanis, the, 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 the root cause of the conflict is not Kashmir. Kashmir is an excuse. You give it away to Pakistan, the Pakistanis will, will still be antagonistic to India. They will still try and indulge in terrorism with India. Their actual objective is to conquer the whole of India and destroy it. That is the real objective. Similarly, if Israel were to accept the, let's say, two-state proposal, that Palestine, that the West Bank and Gaza become become independent and and they become a Palestinian state. The Palestinians will still fight the Israelis. It will solve nothing. You see. And the three-state proposal is that uh, West the West Bank merges with with Jordan, like you see here, and uh, Gaza becomes part of Egypt. Well, I don't think the Jordanian, Jordanians want the West Bank to become part of Jordan. Sure, they will, they will gain some territory, but they are ethnically and culturally different from the people of, of the West Bank, the so-called Palestinians. There is significant opposition within Jordan to the West Bank becoming part of Jordan. Because then the Palestinians will be free to move within Jordan and they could overwhelm the local population. There is already a significant Palestinian population in Jordan. And they don't want the Palestinians to become a majority in their nation, which would mean political loss of power and, and much, much more. It could lead to cultural erosion and takeover and all that. So there is a significant amount of opposition and resistance from within Jordan, politically and etc., against the West Bank becoming part of Jordan. It's a very complex situation. It's all been created by the Western powers. Uh, so, so that's where we are. So as of today, there is no solution. The West Bank is still uh, de facto governed by, by Israel. The Israelis, uh, there are Israeli regions also, settlements within the West Bank, and there is constant conflict with the West Bank, with Gaza and so on. So that's where we are. There is no solution right now. Right now, uh, There are three different solutions that have been proposed, but none of them seems to be acceptable to everybody, least to all Israel. So right now, we don't know what the solution is.
we are at a stalemate. Okay, next the question. Okay, uh, I don't know what the name is. It says, when you were collaborating with the Jaipur Dialogues regarding the Jai Shankar Doctrine and Ajit Doval Doctrine, you said that if India becomes nearly as powerful as China, then its relations with China may improve. But in a previous video, you also said that no superpowers, no two superpowers can or will share a long border. Am I missing something? Could you please elaborate on this? All right, good question. Now, first of all, let me address the question of the Jay Shankar doctrine and the so-called Ajit Doval doctrine. The Jay Shankar doctrine is something I have spoken about. Maybe I gave the name Jay Shankar doctrine. I have never spoken about any Ajit Doval doctrine. If it exists, we don't know what it is. Okay. And there is this, uh, well, there is this uh, perception that's been created. That there is a conflict apparently between Mr. Doval and Mr. Jay Shankar. There is absolutely no evidence to that. That claim is completely baseless. Right. If there is actually a doctrine, it's a Modi doctrine. And the manifestation of the Modi doctrine in the external affairs sphere is what we can call the Jayashankar doctrine. And if there is a Ajit Doval doctrine, that also is a manifestation of the, of the overall Modi doctrine, but from the uh, internal security, etc. perspective. Right? So any any claim that there is a conflict between Mr. Jayashankar and Mr. Do, Mr. Doval is baseless. What is the evidence for that? It's it. So so I completely disagree with that. Let me put that on on the record. Uh, both Mr. Jayashankar and Mr. Doval serve at the pleasure of the Prime Minister of India, and their only objective and their only job, their only duty, is to carry out the policies that the Prime Minister has formulated. So whatever they are doing is in synchronicity with each other and with the Prime Minister's overall large-scale vision for the country. So let me just place that on the record. Now, I said there on the Jaipur Dialogues, uh, if I, okay, that if India becomes nearly as powerful as China, then relations may improve. But I also said that no two superpowers can share a long common border. There is nothing wrong with either of the statements. India is not a superpower. China is not a superpower. If India becomes nearly as powerful as China, there will be both great regional powers. There will not be superpowers. Right now, there is only one superpower, the United States. The Chinese aim to displace and replace the US as the only superpower. Right now, they are no match to the US. They cannot afford to have a hot war with the US. They will be destroyed completely. The Chinese are in no position to fight the US militarily or even economically right now. So if India rises to a position that's comparable with China, there could be a period of cooperation between India and China. It will not be forever cooperation. Eventually, if the US declines and India and China become the two great powers in the world, there is going to be conflict with, between India and China. I'm talking about a small period, maybe a few years of cooperation. India and China are always going to be rivals as long as there is a common border. Unless Tibet becomes free again, India and China will definitely enter into a conflict in the future. So that's the point. Look at the big picture. I said something, don't look at it, that statement in isolation. Look at it from the bigger perspective. India and China may cooperate for some time uh, because if India becomes more powerful, the Chinese will not find it in their favor to fight India because a more powerful India can destroy China 
even today the chinese can't fight india because india has the ultimate weapon that they fear so that's what i mean the chinese are not a superpower india is not a superpower there's only one superpower as long as there's a bigger threat to the chinese they may for some time wish to cooperate with a more with a more powerful india but eventually india and china will be in conflict unless tibet again becomes free in which case there could be peace between india and china even if both become superpowers so that is the nuanced and large big picture answer to your question okay siddharth says you mentioned about angus madison's gdp analysis how india was the richest nation for close to 2000 or plus years sir but but did chingiz khan and other invaders know about this about mr madison's analysis or or the fact that india was rich because this analysis of gdp is recent and maybe the ancient world didn't know that india was the richest and maybe that's why chingiz khan didn't invade india hmm see <laughs> when you are rich when you are rich everyone knows you can't hide the fact that you are the greatest economy in the world let's say you are a rich person you live in a certain neighborhood eventually everybody will know that you are rich people have a very inquisitive nature people want to look into their neighbors affairs what has this what is this person up to what is that family up to if you are rich everybody will know you simply can't help it even if you try to live the most meager lifestyle now india is not a small nation it's not a small geographical region you see india as that as the, as the figure on the map it's an enormous geographical region it's a subcontinent sized geographical territory india has been trading india had been trading with the entire world for thousands of years everyone knew how rich india was india had been trading with rome india was trading with egypt india was trading with the greeks india was trading massively massively with the chinese india was trading with southeast asia for thousands of years everyone knew about india you can't hide an enormous civilization like india and the scale of wealth that it possessed so yeah we know there was no gdp analysis at the time angus madison didn't exist then but india's reputation preceded it it wherever it went even in rome people were aware of how incredibly wealthy india was everywhere people knew it so it's not like india was some obscure nation in some half forgotten corner of the world look at the map india occupies a central position in the world everybody knew about india why did vasco da gama want to come to india what was columbus looking for why did he want to come to india why did the europeans why were the europeans so desperate to come to india because they knew how incredibly fabulously wealthy india was and they wanted a piece of that everybody knew how wealthy india was india was the wealthiest of all is is, is it possible chingiz khan didn't know about it india's wealth dwarfed that of the khwarazm empire which he destroyed for good reason i mean it was a just war so it's un- inconceivable that a great conqueror like chingiz khan would not have known how incredibly fabulously wealthy india was it is inconceivable it's simply impossible nobody there, there could be no great power or ruler in the world or king in the world who would not know how wealthy india was all right i hope that explains this 
Lakshya says, if the events that are described, described in the Ramayana happened over 12,000 years ago, why did Bhagwan Sri Ram have to construct the Rama Setu? Wasn't the island of Lanka connected to Bharat by land at the time? 12,000 years ago, there was we were still in the middle of the Ice Age, the last, the last Ice Age. And yes, the water levels, the sea levels across the world were much lower than what they are today. The Indian landmass was much larger and Sri Lanka was connected. It was very much part of the Indian subcontinent. There was no uh, body of water between India and Sri Lanka. It was all connected. Right? Yeah, we know that. No doubt. So the, the assumption that is made in this question is that the Ramayana happened more than 12,000 years ago. How do you know that? How do we know that the Ramayana happened more than 12,000 years ago? Has anybody successfully, conclusively, authoritatively dated the Ramayana? There are many claims. Lots of people have come up with a whole lot of different, different claims. None of those claims has been proven thus far. One person making a claim is not proven. If a person makes a claim, it has to be proven by other people. That yes, we have verified the claims this, this person has made. We have verified all the calculations and this person is correct. And multiple sources have to corroborate this. Only then can you say that a claim has been proven. If a person goes all around the place saying that it's this, much, this many years old, it's just a claim. That person may possibly be right, but has anybody verified it? Many people are saying that other claims are valid. So let us not jump the gun. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. No claim has been proven thus far. All claims thus far, I would say, are equally valid. Only when you have a proper, detailed, long-term, large-scale uh, verification of all the claims that is done, only then will we be able to know exactly, based on archaeoastronomy, when did the events of the Ramayana happen. And why are there so many different claims with both so many wildly disparate dates? Because all of these researchers are interpreting the Sanskrit verses differently. And they are maybe doing the calculations also differently. So right now, none of these claims has been proven. So let's not start believing any of the claims. I'm not trying to demean or disparage any of these researchers. These people have spent years of their lives uh, doing all the calculations and putting forth whatever date they have found. We must appreciate their hard work, their effort, their dedication to the uh, cause of Indian culture and civilization and history. We must appreciate that. But right now, none of the claims has been proven. Okay? So yes, 12,000 years ago, Sri Lanka was part of India. But we know that a, build, a bridge was built. And that kind of, you know what that does? That raises significant questions about that claim of 12,000 plus years ago. And I believe some people are saying that the Sri Lanka that we have today is not the original Sri Lanka. The original Sri Lanka was in, was in the Maldives. How ridiculous is that? How incredibly ridiculous is that? There is only one Lanka, which is today's Sri Lanka. There is no other Lanka. That sort of workaround to justify your claim is, is nonsense. So, yeah, that's what I have to say. There is zero evidence that the events of the Ramayana happened more than 12,000 years ago. There are claims. People have claimed various things. None of these claims have been proven. So we will have to be patient. We still don't know when the Ramayana happened. Okay, let us take a couple of questions more. Where is it? One second. All right. KUS. All right. Says that I recently came across 
a video of a food vlogger in Guyana. He was eating Guyanese puri and dal. This not only sounds like our own puri and dal, it looked like it too. This had me wondering about a country in South America having Indian influence. Can you please tell us the history behind this? All right. Where's the map? We have to look at this wonderful country called Guyana. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Let me pull up the map and uh, let's go to Guyana. Google Maps. All right. Where is Guyana? So you know where India is. You know where India is. Let's orient ourselves. Let's go westwards, 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 Atlantic Ocean, westwards. And we are here, the Americas. Now let's go slightly southwards. And here is the nation, the present day nation of Guyana. Yeah. This is a highly tropical place. Very warm, very humid. So this is the nation you're talking about. Guyana. It was called British Guyana earlier. And there is a French Guyana here also. There is this place called Kuru from where they launch rockets, Aryan rockets. But we are talking about Guyana. Georgetown is the, cap is the capital city of Guyana. So why did you discover something Indian there? So now that you know where Guyana is, let me show you something else. Uh, Guyana, the nation of Guyana, contributes cricket players to the West Indies cricket team. All right. So the West Indies cricket team uh, has players from Guyana. Let's take a look at some of these players. Yeah. One second. <clears throat> Let's take a look at some of the Guyanese cricket players. Let me share the screen with you. Guyanese cricket players. Check out these people. Taganara and Chandrapal. Gudakesh Moti. Veerasamy Parmol. Chandrapol Hemraj. You can see so many. Vishal Singh. And list of international cricketers from Guyana. Let's see some more. <clears throat> Rohan Kanhai, Indian. Alvin Kalicharan, another Indian. Shiv Narayan Chandrapal. Ramnaresh Tarwan and so on and so forth. So as you can see, lots of Guyanese cricketers have Indian origin. And overall, the nation of Guyana uh, if you look at the religious demographics in Guyana, I think at least 25% or around 25% of the population of Guyana practices Hinduism. Why is it so? So clearly, more than 25%, more than a quarter of the Guyanese population is of Indian origin because many of them have converted to Christianity. So how did this happen? So, so what you have seen is obviously Indian culture. It's Indian cuisine. There's still eat Indian food there. So what happened? Let me show you what happened and how did this end, end up being the way it is. Let me show you what happened. I've shared this image before. I'm, I'm sharing it again. So between the 19th century, between 1835 and 1917, the British forced about a million Indians to travel to other parts. They, they essentially shipped off about a million Indians officially to various parts of the world to work as indentured laborers. Indentured laborers means you will essentially work as a slave, but you will be given a certain amount of money. And you have to work for a certain number of years and you are not allowed to go back to India. So this was permanent deportation from India. About half a million to uh, parts of Africa, 150,000 to South Africa, Tanzania, etc., and about 450,000, which is almost half a million, to the West Indies region, 
Trinidad and to Guyana. Right? So these Indians were used as essentially nothing more than slave labor. They were forced to work in sugarcane plantations, other plantations, work in fields, and they were never allowed to go back to India. So that's where they settled down. And that's where their descendants still live. That's why you have so many people of South African, of, of Indian origin in South Africa. Because traditionally, for thousands of years, Indians have lived, traveled to Africa, lived there, traded there in Eastern Africa, in Kenya, etc. But South Africa, there was very little Indian presence before the Indians were deported there by the British. Similarly, in the Caribbean region, you have so many Indians who live there. Guyana is in South America. But yes, even Guyana received lots of Indians. So this entire Caribbean region received about half a million Indian so-called indentured laborers. And that's why you saw this food vlogger showing Guyanese, I mean, eating Guyanese puri and dal. And let me show you the kind of food they eat in South Africa, in Durban, etc. There is this famous dish called Bani Chao that they eat over there, which is essentially nothing but bread with some Indian stew, curry within this. So you, this is like, you know, some Indian food in, inside bread. So this is a staple of the South African diet. Even the non-Indians eat it. It's very popular there. So you will see Indian cuisine in all these places where Indians have been forced to travel to to in order to work as essentially nothing more than slaves. That is the legacy of British of the British occupation of India. Uh, Kuldeep says, as you said many times, and we learned this from history as well, all great thing, things come to an end because of poor succession. My question is simple, who should be, who or how should be your successor? See, I spoke about empires and kingdoms. Empires rise because of great leadership. All empires eventually crumble because of poor leadership and poor leadership happens because of poor succession. A great emperor may be succeeded by a mediocre one. So when the succession grow, goes wrong, that's when an empire eventually declines and crumbles or a kingdom. I am not an emperor. I am not a king. I'm just a guy. So, um, you know, who will be my successor? Why don't you all be my successors? You know, I mean, I'm still in, I'm I'm not about to abdicate my position any anytime soon. But yeah, what I'm doing is about spreading knowledge, whatever little I've learned. And I'm learning to all of you. And I'm very grateful and very very honored that all of you watch this and, and listen to me. So I'm very grateful. You are all my successors. Learn everything you wish to learn and, and teach it to, to others. So succession is typically about empires, about emperors and kings. But that's what I can say. Right? <clears throat> Harsh says, someday we might do a live session in the metaverse. I don't know how you will control the multiple questions then. Say some, something like Arnab's debate, I guess. <laughs> yeah, if the metaverse takes off, we could do Ask Abhijit in the metaverse and we could be all sitting in one big room um, in, met, in the metaverse, the metaverse room, several thousand of us, and maybe we could have a Q&A session there. I'm not sure how we could moderate it like you're saying. We would not want 15 people talking at the same time, but <laughs> yeah, it could happen in the future. Let's see if the metaverse becomes something useful to all of us. Okay, we are almost at the end. Let me take a few questions from the live chat. You have questions for me. Ask me in the live chat. I will take some questions from the live chat. Ask me some questions I haven't answered before, hopefully. Um, 
what is my opinion on dr s jayshankar i think he is the best foreign minister external affairs minister we have had in living memory yeah clearly aligned towards india's national interest and he is uh, he is doing an extraordinarily good job i think he is the most impactful diplomat in world geopolitics today great great i have the highest of regard for dr s jayshankar i've heard that jesus came to india and kashmir is it true uh, there's no evidence 0.0 evidence of that can medieval war forts survive modern warfare if reconstructed and maintained properly all it takes is a cruise missile strike to obliterate any kind of building no matter how thick the walls you have a war you have a missile with a powerful enough warhead conventional warhead it will take out any fort whatsoever that's why medieval forts don't exist i mean they're not used for warfare anymore because it's pointless absolutely pointless modern warfare has gone way beyond that it's evolved far beyond the medieval tactics so all medieval tactics armor horseback swords and spears and forts etc they they are completely totally utterly obsolete in today's world in the 21st century what's your opinion on katsa katsa is the us sanctions on on because you acquired the military technology hardware etc from a nation that they don't like that is katsa and obviously we in india have acquired various russian weapons systems including the s400 weapon system so the americans were very upset about this but now they have well seen reason and they are on the verge of uh, giving india an exemption to the sanctions sanctions because well if they sanction india it will backfire on them they need india as a counterweight to china they need india they, india is an integral part of 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 uh, of the quad they need india in that they need to keep india well they they the last thing they want to do is to sanction their own quad partner their major quad partner the other nations in the quad are japan and australia which are both us colonies so essentially it's us and india that's all it is and it's a very important thing for them in order to counter counterbalance china so obviously they were not going to sanction india it's it's going to backfire on them if they do it so yeah uh, it's almost a done deal now that the uh, proposed sanctions are not going to happen where what was it i saw something and it disappeared um do you like anime i as a kid i used to really like cartoons japanese cartoons and various other cartoons there there was something called robotech i used to watch a long time ago it's it's old history so yeah but these days i i no longer have the, have the time to watch stuff i no longer watch anime or anything but yes i used to like it a lot as a kid great fun uh anything else future of nuclear energy i think nuclear energy has a good future it's a reasonably clean sort of form of energy as long as you don't let the reactor melt down and modern reactors have lots of safeguards checks and checks and balances that ensure that the reactor will operate safely it's a very good form of energy it has almost I mean, zero carbon footprint the germans are doing a ridiculous thing by by shutting down their nuclear reactors in france in france i think more than 70% of their electricity comes from nuclear energy how nice is that they don't need to burn coal they don't need to burn gas they don't need to burn any other fossil fuels it's good 
as long as you operate them properly, professionally, nothing's going to go wrong. Uh, you've had a couple of accidents. Chernobyl, Chernobyl is a is a good example. Is a bad example. Terrible example. That was because of of, of mistakes. Fukushima. Well, that was a tsunami, right? You know, like a once in a hundred years kind of event. So as long as you make sure something like that doesn't happen, your reactors are safe. So I think nuclear energy is something people, nations around the world should invest in. In the future, hopefully we will be able to tame the fusion reaction, which will be even cleaner than the ordinary fission reactors that we have, which do produce some, some nuclear waste. Fusion reactions will be will be way cleaner than that. I think nuclear energy should be invested in and it has a good future. Okay, with this, we are at the end of today's session. Thank you, all of you, very much for all the questions. Always great talking to you all. Next week, we will do a session on Twitter again and a couple of other sessions like this one. So until then, take care. Thank you very much. And I will see you in the next episode. And we will keep on having these wonderful interactions. Take, Thank you. Take care. Bye.